0: I think what's cool about what I refer to in the film Lost as unknown is that the unknown is unknown to me. It's like when people say we're going into uncharted territory or we're exploring, right? There's not many places left on Earth to actually explore But I think when you look at it on a person-by-person basis, it's like maybe you're skiing a line that's not a first descent, but you know what? It's your first descent, and you've never been there before. And most likely, that allows that sense of discovery, which is something that I'm pretty focused on. It allows you to maintain that sense sense of discovery. And so frequently, when I'm planning an expedition or I'm planning a trip, I kind of stop before I do as much planning as I possibly could because I want to maintain that sense of discovery. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vasily.
1: Hi everyone, thank you very much for tuning into my Run Your Life podcast series, and as always, I really do appreciate your time and energy and for listening to any episode that you can. So a bit of background into my podcast before we begin today. The whole purpose behind my podcast is to better understand what motivates and inspires people to strive for excellence in their chosen fields of work, whatever that work may be and what it takes to overcome the challenges and obstacles that can often stand in the way of success. And many of the people that I've had on my show have indeed achieved great success in their life, but it has not come easy. Having a resilient spirit has been a necessity in helping them to overcome the failure defeat Injury and hardship that many of my guests have experienced on their journeys towards success. I'm excited to share this new episode with you today and in the show I interview professional adventure skier Brody Levin. Brody has climbed up and skied down many of the most challenging mountains in the world and has captured these adventures through his filmmaking and and his writing. His latest documentary called Lost recently came out, and in this short film, Brody captures his amazing journey to the country of Georgia, which lies on the Russian border. He spent more than two weeks in treacherous weather, halfway up the highest peak in the country, to wait for weather conditions clear enough to climb the 4,500-foot peak, and to make his descent on skis Straight Down, a breathtakingly beautiful vertical drop. In this episode, Brody speaks deeply about what he learned from this experience and also dives into other lessons learned through many of the challenging adventures he has done in the past. Brody is also an activist and advocate for raising awareness about the impact of climate change and recently lobbied for climate change action on Capitol Hill, in Washington DC. There is so much more that I want to talk to Brody about, so I'm very grateful that he happily agreed to recording a second part to this interview, which I'm planning on recording later in the week. I'm very excited to continue our discussion. I encourage you to watch the 14-minute mini-documentary Lost either before or after listening to this episode with Brody, to gain more insight into the extraordinary feat that he had accomplished in Georgia in 2018. The link to the YouTube video is in the show notes of this episode. I really do hope that you listen to part two when it comes out next week. And with that, let's jump right into my conversation with Brody Levin. Okay, Brody, it's great to have you on my podcast. I've, I've followed your work. Actually, a friend of mine uh, who's American that I worked with here in Saudi Arabia, um, she's American, but now she lives in Sri Lanka. And she follows my podcast, and she was like, you got to check this guy out, man, and you have to get him on your podcast. So I started to watch all of your stuff, and right away I was so intrigued by everything you're doing, and it's right up my alley in terms of wanting to learn more about Um, the mindset you bring into your adventures and all of that so um, I really look forward to the conversation and thank you for your time yeah that's flattering I I appreciate it man thanks Andy so uh, I guess we'll just jump right into people have already heard a little bit about you in the audio intro but um, what I really want you to talk about right now is just anything you want to say about early days where you grew up anything about your family um, kind of just early adventures, just to frame up the conversation so people have a better insight into who you are?
0: Yeah, um, I I was raised in Northeastern Ohio, kind of in a rural area outside of Cleveland, and um, I come from a a really outdoorsy family, um, but I think that the scope of outdoorsiness is limited just due to where I'm from. Um, we would take, you know, summer vacations, we would load up our family minivan that had 300,000 miles on it and drive across the country to go to Yosemite or Yellowstone or whatever. And the van broke down the whole way. And we're, we're driving up these mountain passes with the heater on full blast. So we don't overheat. Um, I don't come from a family of skiers or climbers or anything like that. It's, uh, just me and my mom, my dad, and my sister. And, um, and yeah, I started exploring, the, the national park scene, I think, which is how you think things are typically done in the Midwest. And, um, I started to grow an appreciation from, and I remember every Earth Day going out and cleaning up streets with my family, just picking up trash. Um, my parents were just kind of hippies and really enjoyed the outdoors and wanted to share that with me. And that eventually transpired into me starting like the once a week ski club, um, At through school, like my friends and I would all go skiing Friday after school, because even though I'm in like the flatlands of Northeastern Ohio, I'm like five minutes from a 210 vertical foot ski hill um, that had, you know, two little chairlifts on it. And you could, it would take 20 minutes to ride the chairlift up and like 10 to 15 seconds to ski down. Hmm. Um, It was almost perfectly flat. And it really started to foster this appreciation for winter and for skiing in me. And I grew up like typical Ohio boy, like soccer was my thing. And I, I, you know, I liked whatever. And I was, I had this little DJ business when I was younger. Um, but I think through skiing, I started to, to see the outdoors, um, appreciate being out there for what I could do while I was out there. And, uh, eventually I wanted to see, if I could kind of make more of a lifestyle out of it. So I went to high school for a couple of years in Vermont. Um, I moved out west to come here to Salt Lake City, Utah for college um, in order to ski more. And I was like academically focused. Um, I went to a selective little school, but at the same time, I knew I wanted to kind of make a life in the outdoors. And uh, upon graduation, I realized that. I kind of had to jump into two feet. If I was going to do that, I didn't have some money tree or trust fund or anything like that. I had to pay for this little private liberal arts school and then I had to start a life. And so I, uh, kind of decided to pursue this goal of being a professional skier, which is obviously what every 12 year old who's skiing says they want to do. But there I was at 22 deciding to be that 12 year old and see if I could actually pursue it. Um, and I went for it and, uh, I, I don't think it's like a box that you check and say, like, I've made it happen. I mean, I have made it happen for 10 years now. I've, I've been skiing for a full-time living. I, I'm a ski mountaineer. I climb and ski down mountains all over the world. But at the same time, it's, there's not a lot of job security in that. So who knows what's going to happen in the future. But for the time being, it does work. And um, I've definitely, I think, kind of made my dream come true in that aspect.
1: Uh, it's such a beautiful story. And when I think back and I, I listen to you describe your early days, I definitely hear in in you that there was an adventurous side to the whole family and that probably really planted those seeds. But if you had to really think about um, the strengths that you developed early on or your, your core kind of at the core of what you represent, what two or three words would describe you know, what you've learned about yourself, your journey, and those, those strengths that you possess? Um, that's a really interesting question,
0: Andy. I I think the first thing that comes to mind is, um, entrepreneurial. I, I've never worked for anyone else. Um, I was nine years old when I started this DJ business. I mean, I had my first paying job when I was nine years old. I was DJing weddings when I was 13. I, had employees when I was 15. It was full-time by the time I was 15. Um, I was like, you know, leaving school and right away working on contracts for that weekend shows and stuff when I was in middle school. And, um, and that kind of taught me that it wasn't about the fact that I didn't want to work for other people. I think it was about the fact that I did want to work for myself. And uh, that kind of carried on till now as a professional skier. Like I have this business on Brody Levin Incorporated. But it's just me, obviously, and I'm able to contract people out when I need other work done. But I just have this self-motivation, which is maybe another one of those two or three things that the self-motivation inside of me that is kind of... um, It doesn't seem to lapse very frequently. It's it's been a reason I haven't been someone that's had the goal set in my life. Um, I've instead of setting these kind of arbitrary goals and trying to reach them or doing what I can, and then either being disappointed when I don't reach them or I think underserving myself, if I do reach an arbitrary goal and then say, I I have more energy or more time, but I kind of sit back on my laurels because I'm like, no, I've reached my goal. Instead, I'm able to use this kind of inherent self-motivation to just continue working every day. I know that I'm just going to work my hardest to do my best and And thus, I don't need to set goals. The same way I do a lot of trail running. And instead of like setting the amount of time that I want to take to get to this peak, I know that I can just go as fast as I can. And I think that's actually a pretty good analogy. Because if I were to set a goal time, and I'm getting there in that amount of time, I'll probably slow down at the top. Or if I'm so far off that time, I'm just going to slow down because I know I'm not going to reach it. Instead, I know that every step I take, I'm going to be pushing as hard as I can.
1: How do you think your parents played a role in that? Yeah, I mean, my,
0: my parents are great. I mean, they, they're from Ohio and Philadelphia, so they haven't like traveled very far from home. Um, they've only left the country, I think, twice ever. And, but they fostered this. I think what it was, they kind of gave me the freedom. Like They saw I was self-motivated. I was a good student. I had, you know, a 4.3 in high school or whatever, but I didn't do my homework till the morning of or till when I'm sitting in class, but they saw that that worked for me. that allowed to do my DJ work the nights prior, you know? Um, I think they kind of gave me that flexibility. I was never someone who was grounded or who had these kind of goal check boxes mm-hmm. I had to achieve. Instead, I think they saw that I was going to continue going for it and, and they gave me kind of the room to do that, which I really appreciated. Um, and at the same time... They, you know, my dad took me backpacking in Pennsylvania when I was 12, 10 years old, something like that. Um, they saw that I wanted to start skiing. They weren't skiers, but they helped me figure out like, how does a 10 year old get into skiing in Ohio at this hill that's around the corner from me? Um, one, the one thing that comes to mind, my DJ business, uh, which was called Brody's DJ service when I was nine years old. And eventually it became Brody's extreme sounds extreme with an X because it was the nineties. And that's what you do. My dad called himself Brody's roadie. And he came, I mean, I DJed hundreds and hundreds of shows between the ages of nine and 18 when I finally liquidated this business. And, you know, I was doing big proms and weddings and corporate events and all of these things, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the audience. And, and my dad came to every one of those shows before I could drive. I bought this enclosed trailer and he would have to drive me to the show with my trailer and then unpack all the gear, set it up with me. And then he would just kind of disappear for a couple hours while the show was going on. Cause I was, you know, 13 and I was embarrassed to have my dad at the show as I'm like getting people to dance into the microphone and stuff. Oh, and then um, he would just magically appear at 1030 when the event ended and help me tear everything down. Um, you know he would often go talk to the the parents of the sixteen year old who was having the birthday party or whatever it was um, and and that's kind of seeing that support meant a lot to me and and i do I, I volunteer a lot now in the environmental space, and that support that I saw kind of transferred into me seeing the way they cared about the planet and the world um, and we had this beautiful yard with these really nice gardens and the way they kind of um, they nurtured the the environment around them as something that's translated into me. And even though I choose to live in the city now, I still have that uh, appreciation for the environment. And that's why so much of my volunteering and activism work revolves around that.
1: Yeah, that's great. And so I'm just going to highlight four words that stand out to me. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm highlighting them for a reason. Autonomy, exploration, choice, agency. And those four concepts are hugely important in education. Mm -hmm. We're truly trying to educate young people uh, in a personalized way that allows them to find their passions and, and really understand why they're, what they're meant to do in life. Those things uh, are the things that stand out. And that's totally your story you know it sounds like you had total autonomy you had that sense of exploration from a very early age you had choice you were in control of what you chose to do and you had agency and it's just it's such a great story for the importance of educators listening to this to really understand the uh, how critical it is to personalize learning for their students to allow their students to find a passion and that's ultimately what you've done is that pretty accurate?
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely accurate. And I don't think they were trying to foster any certain passion within me, but they gave me that agency to choose my own. And I think one thing that, you know, I'm 32 years old now, so I think about different parenting styles and things like that. And one thing that that kind of comes to mind for me is um we would go trick-or-treating on Halloween, right? And we would get a ton of candy at these like we would have to go into slightly more suburban areas cuz I lived, you know, you could not see the houses near me and we would fill up these bags of candy we bring them home and we transfer them all into jars we would have our jar of like sweets and our jar of chocolate and our jar of sour stuff and these like big candy jars and i think most kids ate their halloween candy that night or in the, in the following week or their parents kind of had to divvy it up and be like you can have one after dinner each day or something like that for me My sisters and my candy sat out on a shelf in these big jars in the open all the time. It was up to us when we had it. We could go there for breakfast and have some candy. We could go there in the middle of the night and have some candy. But because that option was consistently available to us, I'm sure there's some educator term for this because it was always available to us. The novelty of it lowered and thus we like rationed ourselves and that candy would last all the way until next Halloween, <laughs> even though it was out in an endless variety for us. And I have a sweet tooth also, you know, like that <laughs> is not always it's keeping me from eating the candy. It was just this kind of sense of autonomy and being like, no, I need to make the right decision for myself. And I think the same thing came with the fact that my, my parent didn't go, didn't pay for me to go to college. Like I had to figure out, how to ration my money throughout college and work a little bit during college to make this happen. And then I graduated and I had to figure out how to make a living. And this was all on me. And I think that responsibility that that agency kind of put in me um, is something that I couldn't trade for. And while my friends in college were making fun of me for the fact that why don't you just come out to dinner with like, why don't we just go out to eat together? Why are you always being so cheap after college? I've actually had multiple friends come up to me and be like, my parents cut me off. And I get it now. Yeah. And I'm sorry for the way I treated you in college. <laughs> um, and those are things that I didn't necessarily appreciate at the time. But over time, I've grown to appreciate and I think have um, translated to the way I run my business and the way I run my life.
1: Yeah, and serves you so well and now and into the future. And if we, if we look at your, your journey, um, I'm going to include all as many of your YouTube links as I can in the show notes. Oh, cause cool. I really want people to jump on and, and see some of it. And I like your videos cause some are two minutes, some are 10, 14, yeah. whatever, but they're just a nice bite size that you can just get a glimpse into some of the stuff you've done. And, uh, obviously I, I, I looked at your Georgia, uh, not Atlanta, Georgia, uh, your Georgia country, you know, in the USS, former USSR, um, experience and your Norway experience, but let's jump into the deep end and how do you summarize the work you now do?
0: Yes. Yeah, so, um, it's interesting because I wanted to be a pro skier and I've become a pro skier and what a lot of people I assume think that means is that you get paid to go skiing every day. And that has not been my experience. Um, I I do get paid to ski, but um, I think my career exists because of the things I do supplemental to the skiing, um, the activism work that I volunteer to do, but is also part of my brand, right? I do some of the social media influencer work. Um, I do some public speaking work. I do some appearances. I do some product design and feedback with the brands that I work with as sponsors. Um, I do some video production, I do some hosting on screen. Um, and then there's all these other things like the fact that I do dozens of podcast interviews every year, but those just kind of tie into this brand this recognition that I build as like Brody Levin, the skier and the climber, you know, and, and one thing I've done in the outdoor industry is I've become one of the first athletes to really be known as a four season athlete. I kind of want to say jack of all trades, master of none, sort of thing, but I would say ski mountaineering is my my mastery. Um, I travel around the world to climb and ski mountains that primarily haven't been climbed or and or skied
1: before. Um, but but I do, do it rock. on a bicycle a lot of times, which is cool. Yeah, when on a bicycle, videos, you're like, this is not my forte, man. Like this, this is tough. But it's it's your the expertise expertise lies in the skiing and the climbing. But it's funny just to see some of those cycles you you've gone on as well. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I do
0: I do a lot of the bike packing thing, and when I say a lot, it's a lot for someone who makes a living as a skier, right? So once or twice a year, I load up a bicycle with a bunch of bunch of gear and go bike camping somewhere. Um, I do alpine climbing, ice climbing, rock climbing, trail running, you know, a little bit of kayaking. Um, and these things together are kind of what form what I do. And that is to share stories from the mountains. But a lot of these stories aren't really relatable for most people. Most people don't picture going to the Republic of Georgia and climbing the highest peak there and skiing down this line off the side of it, yada, yada, yada. Instead, it's about kind of humanizing those stories mm-hmm. and translating for whether it's for corporations or for schools or whatever it is these stories that um these experiences what they teach me in the mountains um and what i can bring back to my life here in the city and what i can do to um, give back to the planet and its people
1: and that's what i want to dive into I, yesterday and in the day before you were uh, doing some lobbying in washington right
0: yeah uh, so
1: I, I want to dive into that but before going there um i just i want to kind of look at some of the the work that you've done and um in particular the documentary right um so you went to georgia for this experience and uh it's people just have to see the video to understand deeply how challenging that experience was can you just talk about some of those big adventures, and this idea of, and using your own words, you you say, you talk about uh, heading into the unknown. And really, every adventure you go on is heading into the unknown. Can you just talk about the first seeds going into the unknown, and then what you learned about yourself to better equip yourself mentally to go into the unknown?
0: I think what's cool about what I refer to in the film Lost as unknown is that the unknown is unknown to me. It's like when people say we're going into like uncharted territory or we're, we're exploring, right? There's not many places left on earth to actually explore. But I think when you look at it on a person-by-person basis, it's like maybe you're skiing a line that's not a first descent, but you know what? It's your first descent and you've never been there before. And most likely that allows that sense of discovery, which is something that I'm pretty focused on, it allows you to maintain that sense of this, this sense of discovery. And so frequently when I'm planning an expedition or I'm planning a trip, I kind of stop before I do as much planning as I possibly could, because I want to maintain that sense of discovery. It's the same reason that people, when they maybe ask me about um, how you find a first certain place to ski or what's the name of that trail or where's your favorite place you've been. I don't always just spoon feed it to them. and It's not that I'm gatekeeping. It's that I'm, allowing them to maintain that sense of discovery and perhaps learn it the same way I did. Because there's nothing like it for me, like pouring over maps and looking at Google Earth and trying to figure out where I want to go climb and ski and try to figure out how to take these next steps in my business. All of these are related to the sense of discovery that I personally find really enjoyable. And is not something that I want to um, eliminate. It's not something that I want to eliminate for other people as well. So I don't like to get as much as what we call beta, like the information going into a trip. I don't like to um, kind of have the experience before I have the experience. And so that going into the unknown just means the unknown for me. And do I have the opportunity being 2020 to get more information about the unknown than maybe the early explorers did? Absolutely. And does that increase my margin of uh, or my safety margins? Absolutely, and am I going to take advantage of that for sure? Am I going to take a two-way Garmin InReach satellite communicator to make sure that I can text in case of an accident? Absolutely, that doesn't necessarily diminish the um, sense of discovery for me. It just allows me to do that in a safer way. But I, I really do appreciate going into these places that I haven't been before, whether that's kind of metaphorical or physically going into them, because. Uh, I mean, you know, like, it, was that something that was instilled in me young by my parents? I don't know. And, and is that something that kind of grows over time for sure? But do did I have a very specific first step? Yes. And what was that? My sophomore year of college, um, it was nearing the end of the school year and I had never left the country except to go visit Canada. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm minoring in Spanish I want to do some traveling at this point. I'm skiing obsessed. It's not like, it's not my job. It's just something that I absolutely love to do. I'm, you know, 19, 20 years old. And I bought a a round trip ticket to Argentina that left the day after school ended and returned to Salt Lake city the day before school started. So it was like two months in Argentina had never left the country. Kind of spoke Spanish. I had a ski bag, in a backpack with camping gear. And I had like a little bit of money in my wallet. And I was like, let's see how this goes. I had to figure out how to stretch that money to last. I had to figure out just how to travel, how to ride buses, how to find a hostel, things that you are very familiar with at this point, how to be in a different country than what I know, because I'm from rural Ohio. And here I am in Argentina. I've only lived in one other place that Salt Lake City for one year. So let's see how this goes. <laughs> and, um, And that changed my life. That really did. I was there for like two months, just riding buses. I got down there. I'm like, Oh, it's summer. So that means Argentina must have winter. I got there and there was no snow anywhere in the country. I had to find some place to leave my hundred pound ski bag while I went. And I just traveled for a month. I camped all over the country. I met all these people. I stayed in all these hostels. And, and I just, I saw most of the country over the course of this month. And then I went back, got my ski bag. And I said, okay, now the skiing portion of this trip is going to start. And I kind of did that again, except with my skis. And it, it was kind of a life-changing experience insofar as uh, here I am uh, 13 years later, and I am still doing the same thing more or less. And I have a pretty distinct appreciation for it. And um, the way I travel has changed a little bit. The reasons I travel have changed a little bit. And just this past year, I for for a few years in there, especially right when I graduated college, I would just I would typically use climbing or skiing as my my lens in which I saw the world. Right, so it was about traveling, but I did it for a reason. Some people travel to eat the food, to meet the people. I was doing it to see the mountains, to climb and ski. Um, and I would just go to these places. I would go to Central Asia. I would go to Eastern Europe just to ostensibly to climb, but, but really it was to go there. And then for a while, since, since graduation, maybe for the past 10 years, I've the last five years, it's been more like work centric. I'm like, Oh, I need to go on an expedition to provide this content for my sponsors. Cause I'm a professional skier. Right. And, and, I stopped just traveling to travel. I would fly into the country. I would get whisked up to these mountain ranges by that. I mean, I would walk there. Um, and then I would go skiing. I'd come back down, maybe hang out in the capital city for a couple of days and then bail. And I'd spend three weeks or a month there. And, um, I realized that was happening. And so this past fall, early winter, I decided I need to like go on a trip for the sake of traveling again, something I haven't done for a while. Again, I put the facade of skiing on. I chose to go to New Zealand and Australia for my first time. Um, Tasmania, rock climb, skied. But I pretty much got down there. The weather was terrible. And I eventually stopped trying to ski. And I was I was in this hut. Um, they call these kind of like hostile hut things that the, 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 the New Zealand Alpine Club runs where everyone just waits out this notoriously bad weather in New Zealand. And I had been there for maybe two out of five weeks and I had skied one day. And otherwise I was just staring at the weather map, drive a little rental car that paid $12 a day for that. My skis barely fit in. And I was just bouncing around the country. And this is a way that my traveling has evolved. That's the same thing I was doing in Argentina 13 years ago, but I was doing it by bus and I was sweaty all the time. and I wasn't showering. (laughs) Now I pay $12 a day for a rental car and I'm driving around the country trying to chase these windows of good weather. But in hindsight, all I did was chase like a couple days behind the good weather. And so I was just stuck in these storms for weeks. And I was sitting in this hostel and I once again had loaded up my ski pack, thinking I was going to head into the mountains for a couple days to camp and ski. And the weather came in and I just had to put my ski pack back in my car after being all loaded up. And I kind of had this ceremonious moment where I decided... I need to salvage this trip because I've been seeing this country. I can tell it's special, but I've just been chasing this goal. And I'm not a goal setting person. And that goal is to ski. I've been chasing it all over the country and I'm not achieving it. And so instead of like trying to chase this arbitrary goal of trying to ski, I had this ceremonious moment where I, I packed my ski travel bag back up the same way I did when I travel I strapped my skis down, I unpacked my backpack completely, and I zipped the ski bag up all the way where it's been unzipped for two weeks of just traveling around, always thinking I'm going to grab my skis. I zipped it up, all my ski years in there, and I said, I'm done trying to ski. I've got a few more weeks here. I want to just travel and enjoy my experience here the same way I did in my early 20s. And the reason I want to do that is because these experiences are what allow me to grow an appreciation by getting a sense of the world and the planet and its people. It allows me to kind of experience things on my own terms instead of just a ski-oriented trip. And it will allow me to, I think, do what I came here to do, which was like to kind of go back to these roots a little bit of traveling for the sake of traveling because that is what really has turned me into who I am. And zipping that ski bag shut was the best thing I could have done. Cause I just started climbing or excuse me. I started traveling And when I did that, of course, the good weather followed and I couldn't help but think like, should I just turn back that skiing on a little bit? Like now I've got good weather. Should I go for it? And I said, no, I had that ceremony. I zipped the ski bag up. I'm done trying to ski and I'm here to do what I'm really here to do. And that's kind of like find my roots again. I've got a house now and I've got a girlfriend, I've got a dog. And I didn't think I'd be able to do these kind of trips again. But I found six weeks to go to Australia, New Zealand, and Tasmania and rock climb a little bit, travel a little bit, not really have an agenda. And that was like the most kind of centering, resetting thing I could have done. And do I say that from a place of privilege? For sure. The fact that I was able to do that and still call it quasi work. Um, But I was paying for it out of pocket, which... I guess kind of comes off weird, but I, I I don't pay for trips anymore on my own because that's part of the job I have. Um, I was paying for it out of pocket. I was traveling around for the sense of traveling and it was the best thing I could have done.
1: And John Kabat-Zinn, the mindfulness expert, uh, have you heard of John Kabat-Zinn? I don't know. So he's written several books, Wherever You Go, Here I here You Are, I think is the title, or Wherever You Go, Here I Am. But it's just this idea of the power of the present moment. And you just encapsulated everything you just said, uh, captured the essence of being in the present moment to truly enjoy what you're doing and to experience it. And and that's that idea. like you You can't do the work that you do or climb the mountains you do or ski down if you're not totally present in the moment. You can't be ruminating about the past or projecting into the future. The present moment and stitching together all of those present moments is so critically important. And you talk about mental agility. And I think that's your ability to have that little ceremony to zip the ski bag shut is mental agility. You just, you know, it's it's just not working out the way you wanted, but you have to be agile in the way you think and the way you behave. And Um, I've never thought of it that way, Andy, but I mean that I think that's something I've probably learned in the mountains or has
0: allowed me to at least be successful in the mountains and maybe I've learned it before. But I mean, when you when you're trying to climb a mountain that you've never climbed before or one that you have climbed before, you are faced with obstacles, whether that's weather or terrain or equipment or your fitness or your nutrition or your partners or your avalanche danger, you're faced with these obstacles that cannot be foreseen. I should say they can be foreseen, but they cannot be um, planned for when they arise, how you're going to deal with them. And you don't know if they're all going to show up on any given day or none of them are going to show up on any given day. You're just going to have perfect weather and walk to the top of that mountain. And so I think that, being able to apply that to what I do in the mountains, but then also taking it out of the mountains and applying mm-hmm. it to life is something that I haven't really thought about, but I think is um, absolutely part of living my life. Because if my mind is somewhere else where I'm climbing a mountain, that's just a recipe for disaster.
1: Uh, totally, right? And, and that's that idea. Of, I think everything you do is about, you know, not everything, but uh, much of what you do is about pushing yourself to um, the edge of your capacity right? And really your Georgia experience um, was just that. And I couldn't, you know, when I was watching the video, it's not like you were waiting for good weather for a day or two. You waited for good weather. So to give some more context, you flew into Georgia, um, the country, and then you had to transport all of your gear up the mountain on horseback and then carry it up and set up your camp and people will click the video and watch it. But um, but you're waiting for good weather to be able to climb and ski down, but it turned into three weeks of just shit weather, lightning, you know, just crazy weather and, and mentally how that can toy with your emotions. And you were very emotional in your video. So talk b- more deeply about that experience in particular and the you know the the struggle with trying to wait for the right moment to, and then all of the maybe not negative questions, but all of the self doubt that can creep in, and what can, do you continue to tell yourself in that moment? to stay the course and steady the course and to uh, stick it out to ultimately do what you wanted to do. In this case, you were successful, but in other journeys, you weren't successful because the weather didn't permit you to follow through on what you wanted to do. But this journey in particular, mentally, how did you approach it? How did you wait it out? How did you deal with the internal conflict and self-doubt to ultimately achieve the success you did on this one adventure?
0: I went to Georgia specifically to climb and see this one line that I found on Google earth that dropped off the shoulder of the highest mountain in the country and the highest mountain of the country forms a a border wall between Georgia and Russia. Um, so it's kind of this disputed territory, uh, our drones conveniently were not working being so close to the Russian border. I mean, we're talking like a couple hundred yards from the Russia border. Um, And so we have three weeks to climb this 4,500 foot ski line, which is something that at home I would be able to do in, I don't know, two, three hours. But we know these things come up when we're there. And if we're going to fly around the world to try to do something as, as random as try to ski this line, and we want to set ourselves up for success. Could that have meant sitting in the capital of Tbilisi for two weeks after we were done, if we got it done in a day, for sure. But did we have a feeling that wasn't going to be the case? Definitely. Um, And and I came out with this this film a couple of weeks ago called Lost, which has kind of uh, been on the back burner as far as promotion goes due to more relevant and pressing issues that have come up in the country and the world. Um, But if if people wanted to have a look at it, you can kind of see the fact that this trip ended up being about more than just climbing and skiing a line to me, as often these trips do. But I don't go into the trips knowing what that kind of ulterior motive is. I went there to climb and ski a line. I came out of there with much more than that. And two weeks of sitting in a tent will do that to you. Especially when you know at any given time, you need to go from like sitting around a tent, trying to ration your food that you've had to carry up on your back, had to carry up two weeks of food, and all your ski gear, and all your camping gear and all your safety gear. And you don't want to eat all, you don't want to eat all that food, which is kind of hard, but you need to be able to turn on at any given moment and perform at your absolute best. Like your mental acuity needs to be on a hundred percent in order to maintain your, I mean, to maintain safety as does your physical fitness because you need to be able to power up and down this, this couloir, this rock choked line, um, on the side of the mountain as fast as possible because speed is safety in the mountains and so you, you kind of have all this in the back of your mind but you also can't help but have your mind drift a little bit because and if your mind didn't drift you're going to drive yourself crazy sitting in a tent for 2 weeks you know and and I'm with my friend and we're kind of talking about stuff but you run out of things to talk about you know and I mean you're just your mind's just kind of going in circles now as Kind of, kind of realized that one reason I was ever interested in Georgia is because a friend of mine um, had planned a trip to go there with me. I kind of started thinking about my career and the fact that I had such a hard time getting this trip paid for. While three years ago, people would have been knocking at my door to pay for this trip, and I just kind of started feeling these ups and downs and um. And those ups and downs also translate to you know, what I actually do in the mountains, which is literally go up and down mountains. And there's a lot of um, emotional turmoil that goes into climbing them because you don't feel safe until you're not at the top of the mountain, but back at the bottom of the mountain. And actually in the film, you hear me say, I'm halfway there when I'm at the top of the mountain, at the apex, But most people would yeah. expect me to be as excited as you can possibly be you can't get very excited on the top of the mountain because you are far, far from safety. And the majority of accidents do happen on the descent, um, both in climbing and skiing. And so I'm kind of thinking about all these things and, and something you'll see in the film is that um, the film opens with me crying. And I've asked people, you know, when do you think people have asked me, excuse me, like, when were you crying? Um, They thought that was, during that two weeks of waiting for good weather, they thought I was just sitting in the tent, like pondering my existential existence on life and what am I doing or in life? And what am I doing here? And, and actually that crying happened after I had successfully climbed and skied the mountain after sitting on the glacier for 10 or 12 days. Um, I got back to camp and I was by myself because my partner was still a little bit up the mountain. And, and I should have been so excited, right? And I was instantly, and I was hot because I was on the glacier in the late spring, and I took off my ski boots, and I, you know, I took off my shirt. I was just this kind of a sweaty mess, and I, I'm sitting there, and I'm done, and I kind of realized... I started thinking about the futility of it. I'm like, why did... The futility of it, like, what, what is the point of me being here to climb and ski this... Mountain? Like what does it mean? Why have I been away from my family and friends for so long? Why has have I and revolved my entire life around this seemingly meaningless pursuit of climbing and skiing mountains? No one in the world knew what I had just done. Nobody cared. Even when people in the world do find out what I just did, they're still not going to care. And they're certainly not going to be able to grasp kind of the, the, the meaning of what I just did and And then I'm questioning, does it matter if they can grasp that? Does it matter if I can grasp that? Does anything matter? Why am I here? Then again, would I rather be anywhere else in the world? This is what I've revolved my life around. And so kind of these, these questions that I think not everyone's asking themselves, why am I standing on top of this mountain? But I think a lot of people are asking themselves, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, should I just start over? Do I have any meaning? What is my meaning in life? You know? And so I think those questions are something that we can all relate to. Um, and, at the, and by the end of the trip and by the end of this two-year filmmaking process that I just went through, I didn't come to some revelation, some big answer. What I did come to though is the realization that um, I think it's okay to have those questions. I think we, I can only assume we all have those questions. And I think asking ourselves those questions is actually a healthy thing. And it's something good because if we are so confident that we're not asking ourselves those questions, we're probably not pushing ourselves into, into our, our discomfort. And I think that discomfort is when we as individuals can
1: grow. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so amazing. And when I, I didn't know that by the way, cause I too I would be one of those that fell into the category of thinking that you were crying and, and really going through that turmoil during the, the two weeks that you were waiting so it makes sense to me now. It's crystal clear that it makes sense that it happened after that you were had those emotions pouring through you after such an accomplishment. But you know, it's it makes sense that that's what you experienced in that moment. And and, and I like think you, the two weeks leading up to it, like you, you kind of still got that tough guy exterior
0: on. You know, that tough person exterior. Like my my friend Mary and I, like we there's no we have to be ready the whole time. Like, yes, you're thinking about things but like you are ready to climb and ski only when I'm down and I'm safe. Was I able to kind of let that guard down and like kind of let loose these emotions that I've either had for this whole trip or maybe for much longer than just this Mm -hmm. trip.
1: But I think that's, that's exactly it. And, and to you in the moment, maybe one of the things was this doesn't matter to anybody else, but really what you've just accomplished is you have pushed yourself to the edge of human capacity. And that in itself is a metaphor for what so many other people can experience in their own life through their own pursuits. So it's really a metaphor for what's possible. And that is what matters most. And that's one of the things that means so much to me about your story is, you know, just that, that you, that whole experience and believing in yourself and, and what you were doing Uh, and keeping that at the forefront and it's not about the skiing, but it's what about uh, it's, it's about what you learn from the experience and that you transfer into life. And that is so important. And um, I think that, so if we look at that and then we look at some of your, and I don't want to say failures because they're not failures because we always learn from failure, right? This growth mindset kind of thing that even in defeat we still learn if we have the mindset to learn and develop ourselves but when you look at some of the the adventures that you weren't successful at how can you reframe that and flip that into actually i didn't accomplish what i wanted to accomplish but i learned this so how can you flip failure and defeat into hope and learning
0: I think normalizing failure is something that's becoming more prevalent um, in the outdoor community because people are pushing the envelope and pushing themselves harder and harder Um, in that normalization, like whether or not it's conscious or subconscious, or I don't think that's necessarily important. I think what's important is that people are pushing to themselves to the point where they're finding that failure, because I don't think you're learning anything if you're not doing that. You know, I, a couple of years ago, like I run, you know, I run, six, eight, 10 miles most days, but I'm not like a runner. I'm not fast. I don't do it regularly. I haven't really run for the past two weeks just because I haven't felt like it. You know, A couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to try a 100 mile trail running race. And I decided that about a week before the race. Um, and I hadn't been running. So I, I crammed and I remember I ran like 88 miles that week going into it. Meanwhile, most people are doing this thing called tapering, which is not (laughs) running the week before the race. Um, and and I went out and I ran this race and I I did finish, but I finished finished with, yeah, I finished. Yeah. And and I, I I finished with a lot of, and so that can be seen as a success. Right. Um, and I think I, I didn't finish in a way that I wanted to finish. Um, and like kind of, the, we call it inclined and call it like the style and we wanted to finish. I like, I, and that for me was as much of a failure as it was a success. And I'm okay with that 100%. Not because I learned a lot for my next 100 mile race or something like that, but because I understood that I could feel this sense of success by having this failure. Let's say to me that that run was a failure. Um, because I was not doing it to finish. I was doing it to see how I could do. And, and that run was a failure to me, but I succeeded in learning through that failure. Um, and that is what's really important because I mean, if I'm, if I'm summiting every mountain that I'm trying to climb, I should probably try to climb harder mountains in my opinion, because that's where I think I grow the most. And, and I'm seeing this more and more in the outdoor industry and Uh, I'd I'd like to say probably other industries are are seeing these shifts as well. And maybe that's, you know, over the course of my lifetime, or it's over the course of centuries. I don't know what that shift is. Um, But people like stories of success. And I think people like stories of success through failures even more. And those are the ones I'm frequently trying to tell because those are real. And as you'll see on my social media or in my writing or in my films, um, I don't, I don't really hold back. I, I think there's, maybe a reason to hold back that I don't really see. um, But I don't. And I'm not just telling these stories of success. And I'm not just painting this very, this very perfect picture through rose colored glasses of my life. um, As much as people would like to potentially see just like, Oh, Brody's a pro skier. He kind of lives the dream. That's awesome. Came from the Midwest, worked himself into this. Like, yeah, you put it in a nutshell. You could choose to say those things. But that can be reframed very easily through a series of failures, including like, hey, how am I going to be able to sustain this career and this path um, with, you know, recent changes in the world or recent changes in my life?
1: Yeah, that's and what you're saying right there is that idea of not only vulnerability, but this this idea of just no, you're not censoring what you're putting out there because so many I listen to so many podcasts and I'm sure you do too. And you listen to so many amazing speakers, but you know, for certain that they're censoring what they're saying, because if they say too much, it's going to reveal a crack in their character and it's going to, it's going to open up some flaws and, and to a lot of people, they don't want to open up those flaws or, the, or the, those cracks because it reveals a side of themselves that they, they don't want people to see because they have built this this persona right but real life is about vulnerability and revealing your cracks and your flaws and that's what you're doing through your work and i encourage you to keep doing it because that's where people will learn from your journeys and identify with your journey and you will give permission to people to do the same and to reveal their flaws and cracks and their in you know, their are imperfect ways of being. And that's where the true growth takes place. And that's what's so commendable about your journey is just uncensored, being vulnerable, putting it out there. And, and that's where the the best learning I think takes place for you and for others following your journey. So I want to truly commend you on that.
0: Thanks. I appreciate that. And and I, I certainly agree with you. I think that's where growth takes place. I actually had, um, one of the absolute most famous and successful climbers in the world yesterday sent me a, a message on Instagram and he or she ex- exposed this, or excuse me, disclosed this um, deep rooted imposter syndrome that they deal with. Um, and this concept of imposter syndrome, something that's in that film lost and something yeah. that I talk about in my public speaking frequently. Um, and, and they shared that with me and I, I couldn't help, but be like, in my mind, I'm just like, you have this. Okay. Okay. I have this. A lot of people have this, but like you have this. And and the reason I say this is because you're kind of like, some people may want to not disclose that. And while I think it often makes a more compelling narrative, I think we also like to have these people that we put on pedestals, um, not necessarily, to inspire us to become that way, but people that we can aspire, like these aspirational people that are like, I can never achieve that, but I really respect that. And these people who we put on a pedestal are those that often aren't revealing their cracks and often aren't disclosing the imperfections. And that works for them for sure. The fact that this person does not disclose those things works for them Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, because everyone knows their name and everyone knows what they're doing. And when I say works for them, I I think I mean, professionally. Yeah. Yeah. May not be good for them inside. Um, but then there's people like me and what's kind of, I guess, working for me is being 100% transparent and not holding anything back. And I think that's because I probably fall more into this, like maybe inspirational realm, if even that or more relatable everyday person realm, because everyone looks at me and they're like, yeah, I could do what he is doing in my own version of life.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's one of the things and you, you hit the nail on the head when you said maybe professionally that works for them, but on a personal level, it might not work because they're taking on the angst of the world and their angst, the angst of their own, um, you know, their own perceived, uh, uh, weaknesses or whatever it is. Right. But, you know, it it definitely might work for them professionally. But in the long run, I think evidence would show, too, in regards to um, psychological well-being, being yourself personally and professionally and and really speaking your truth is what leads to um, greater wellness and well-being and does the same for others. So. I, I wonder if there's good. a
0: balance though. Like maybe I do yeah. it too much and I can, and I'm not good at balance in life in general. And I, I know that for me professionally sponsors don't like the transparency all the time. I'll put right. it that way. Like yeah. they, they may be like, you need to look a little more like a pro athlete, you know, and mm-hmm. a little less like a human being. Yeah. And and I, I don't agree with that. And I've lost sponsorships over that and that's fine with me. But at the same time, it can only be so fine with me if that's how I sustain a my life, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think there probably is a balance to strike. I think the conservative side would be to not disclose any of that. Mm -hmm. And the very liberal side that says, I don't care about this profession would disclose all of it. And I'm unfortunately probably further on that end of the spectrum, um, where, which garners me, um, this super humbling respect from the community members, from the, the people consuming the media, consuming the content, are all about, that is the people who I get the respect from. The industry, the, the, the establishment of the outdoor industry, the change maker those people um, don't necessarily share that respect or reciprocate it professionally. Mm-hmm. And that is where I need to find that balance because yeah. in order to provide that content for the people who truly appreciate it, I also need to appease the people that allow me to sustain the living.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's a great point. And and you're right about that, that, that there does need to be a balance. It's not just throwing it all out on the, on the table, but I think with consistency over time, doing the work that you're doing and doing the work that other people are doing and revealing more of a vulnerable side to themselves, but sticking consistent to what matters most to them and their core values over the long run, those accumulation, you know, just that accumulation of, success over time will, um, counterbalance, you know, will counterbalance and the truth will be revealed over the consistency of time. So I think that, you know, you're totally right though in terms of finding that balance and everybody's different with that balance. So Brody, um, where, you know, I, I would love to do a part two. I told you my son's in a golf tournament and I have to go back to the course, but, where can people find you on social media? Um, first of all, so just share where people can find you and I'm going to include all of the, the show links for sure, um, to everything that you're doing. And again, I would love to maybe catch up in a couple months time to talk about some other things, because I think this is just, you know, just the, I did this with Adam Campbell, actually, you know, Adam Campbell, yeah of course. yeah so we had a t- I was in Germany doing uh some consulting work and I recorded an episode with him and we talked for about an hour and 10 minutes and and I was like oh man we haven't even gotten into it I'm like so sorry <laughs> but I've got to go and I know you're busy too and so let's do a part two so I flew back to Saudi and did part two with him a couple weeks later oh, so cool. I released this uh, two-part series and then Adam as you know experienced great tragedy in his life and he's he's such an amazing person and uh, I, I think about him all the time and his journey, but, um, so I would love yeah, to
0: people, I mean, whether it's, um, someone like Adam, who's gone through so much recently in life or it's communities of color or minority communities, like those, those people allow me to put my struggles and my life into perspective for sure. Like yeah. whether or not I can afford a nicer house or based only on skiing a nicer house based only on skiing income, like these are ridiculous kind of struggles to have, but I think, um, it's all on kind of a continuum, maybe kind of all on a scale. And the fact that we have these identity issues, these self doubt issues, these imposter syndrome syndrome issues. Um, I, I like to think that we're all on a scale of that. For um, sure. and other people unfortunately just have other biases uh, working against them. Um, and that's something that like, I like to appreciate about my life and something that I absolutely recognize. Um, and so like a film, like this film lost that I just came out with, like, I think it's important for me to keep those things in perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But also there's, there's truth to everybody's story is unique. And this is what I've learned about you know, my own story. And I know that I shared a bit about my story with you, um, you know, when we first connected by email and stuff and, you know, and I've, I've had a pretty dark past, but when I, when I really look at my life and I hear other stories, I'm like, how do I even have the right to compare my story to their story? Because what I've gone through is nothing compared to their story. But it's it's not true because every person has a unique life so whatever you've gone through in your own life cannot be compared in any way shape or form to another person's life i think that's
0: that's totally that's that's really nice to hear and because i mean we don't you know a systematic bias of racism working yeah yeah, absolutely i agree with you Yeah. yeah
1: um so brody where can people find you on social
0: yeah, it's not hard to find me. Just Brody Levin, L-E-V-E-N, um, on all the socials, brodylevin.com. And people are always free to reach out to me as well and talk about the outdoors or whatever's on their mind.
1: Where, um, where are you most um, active on social media?
0: i uh, probably split between Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Yeah, I'm just kind of okay. trying to share stories and share messages that I think are meaningful.
1: Okay, great. So uh, thank you very much, man. It's been a great conversation and, and I'm going to highly encourage people to uh, check out your work and to watch your videos and to follow your journey. So really thank you very much for your time.
0: Right on. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for the chat and uh, good luck to the sun today also. In <laughs>
1: yeah. So just stay on the line for a second. I just want to close off the show. Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Brody Levin and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes.